Let's talk about El Chapo. My father and I were actually joking about this because we read that you took that case. When my father heard that, he said to me, man, you know, I hope he does right by him. Otherwise he has to sleep with one eye open. You know, like that that's the folklore, that's the myth. Is that a myth that, that, no. that, that these guys operate like that? No, I think that defense lawyers have been killed. And certainly in Mexico, many defense lawyers were killed supposedly by Chapo's organization. But I find that the people that get killed are usually shitty lawyers. They don't do right by the client. And the clients aren't dumb. And I'd never been concerned about a client. I never was concerned about Chapo. I ended up really getting along with him. I mean, I love the guy. But there was one major problem. When I went to go see him initially, what I had to tell him was one horrible secret. Hey guys, welcome to part two of the Jeffrey Lichtman episode. In part two of my interview with criminal defense attorney Jeff Lichtman, we delve into the case of rapper K-Flock. This is a really interesting case because historically there have been these rap murder charges and, you know, all kinds of situations. Like if you are a kind of a hip hop historian like I am, you remember back in the day when Snoop Dogg was on trial for murder because I think it was his bodyguard or somebody in his entourage who shot and killed somebody. And there have been these kinds of cases going on in hip hop culture in the rap world for many years. And I think that the go-to mentality is that it's the rapper's fault, that it's the artist's fault, that somehow they are just violent and they committed a crime and, and, and all of this. And, and what's interesting is that speaking to Jeffrey, he really delves into what went on with K-Flock. So it is a murder charge. K-Flock is a well-known, celebrated 19-year-old rapper and he was charged with murder. It's really scary because he's 19 years old and he could potentially spend the rest of his life in prison. So this is a really precarious situation. And when you listen to part two of this episode, you're going to get kind of a better understanding of what exactly goes down in these situations and what led to the gun going off, what led to the other party being shot and killed, and just what really happened behind the scenes, because there's a lot more to the story than what the public knows so far. Another interesting thing in part two of this episode is we discuss deceased Colombo family alleged mob boss, Andrew Russo, and what happened with his case. Now, he actually died of old age, and I don't remember what the exact ailment was, um, but, but he died before he ever made it to trial. But what's interesting about the Andrew Russo case is that historically mob figures are not let out on bail because they have enormous resources, they have enormous connections, and, you know, they they really are almost de facto lawyers. I mean, they know criminal law inside and out, and they know how to work all the angles. They've been accused of jury tampering and, and threatening jurors and, you know, or fleeing the country. I mean, there's so many different variables. So traditionally and historically, mob figures are not let out on bail. Now, Jeffrey actually fought tooth and nail to get Andrew Russo out on bail because he was elderly and because he was not a well man. But there's a lot more to that story, too. And it's actually pretty horrifying. The government really did some things that 
you're going to hear in this episode were not so cool. And, and actually what I would interpret as a form of torture, and that's never okay. Even if somebody is a criminal, although we're all innocent in this country until proven guilty, but even if somebody is a criminal, the way that they handled this particular case was really not okay. So you'll hear a lot about that as well. And we're also going to delve more into Jeffrey's experience representing El Chapo and what went down in their first meeting when he went to meet him in prison. Lots of great stuff in this episode. So buckle your seatbelt <laughs> and uh, enjoy part two of my interview with famed criminal defense attorney Jeffrey Lichtman. What had happened was a few years before he was brought over, I had gotten a phone call from the wife of an imprisoned cartel, Mexican cartel defendant. And this is incredible. The parts of the details I haven't mentioned publicly, but I'll, I'll tell it to you. Why not? You're my cousin. She <laughs> said I was referred by Sammy Gravano. He's in, he, was, he knew my husband, I guess, in prison. He was a cooperator. My husband is a cooperator. And we don't want you to do that much in the case. He's already completed just about his cooperation, but we wanted a second pair of eyes on the work that was done. So I said, well, you know, what do you want from me? Well, you know, it's against uh, the Sinaloa cartel. Chapo, the thought of them ever bringing Chapo back to America for a trial, no one ever dreamed that, that Mexico would ever let him go. So I said, well, I felt like a little bit obligated because I was, it was referred by, you know, Gravano. I didn't know Gravano, but he heard of me, knew of me, and we had similar relations, friends. And I said, you know, if you want, I'll go visit your husband and we'll see. So I went to go visit her husband. I liked him a lot. He was also an identical twin. Now I've got real, you know, feelings for identical twins. And, you know, so my kids were identical. He was an identical twin. His brother was a cooperator as well. Pedro and Margarito were the two brothers. I went to go see Margarito. So I listened to his thing and I said, look, if you'd like, I'll go over the stuff with you. So I call up the other lawyer who was representing him. And I said, you know, it could be an uncomfortable call because I didn't want him to think that I was second guessing him or looking over his shoulder. And he said, look, I've heard about you. I'm happy to have you look over the work. He was an older fellow from Chicago. The case mm -hmm. was in Chicago. And he said, I just have to tell you something, though. He says, nobody knows that, we're, that I'm representing this defendant. I said, what? He says, well, the docket sheet, everybody is so convinced that the lawyers will get killed mm -hmm. that none of our names are the brother's lawyer, me, the lawyer's work. None of our names are on the docket sheet. He said, when we go to court, they're not allowed to write our names, the press, in the media. And when they draw the pictures, the court artists, they're not allowed to draw our pictures. I'm like, what are you talking about? He says, there's real danger. He says, our lives have already been threatened. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some of it's gotten out. But nobody knows. A lot of people don't know that we're representing these guys. So if you come into the case, your notice of appearance will go in under seal. So nobody knew that I was in this case. When the fellow was finally sentenced, I didn't do the sentencing. I didn't even go to Chicago. This other lawyer did it. But I was one of the lawyers on the case. And if you read the wife who interviewed me initially, wrote a book about her experience with her sister-in-law, the identical brother's wife. And it's called okay. Cartel Wives. 
And in it, it discusses me. I was under an assumed name in the book because they didn't want to reveal my real name because they didn't want to get me killed. Okay. So then, you know, I'm thinking, what are the odds that Chapo Guzman is ever going to get extradited to America and he's ever going to want me to be the lawyer? So I'm thinking there's a conflict if I'm representing one of these cooperators if Chapo ever wants to hire me. But I'm thinking, it's, what are the odds? One in a million? Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? Two years later, I get a call to go visit Chapo in prison. And I've got to tell him something that nobody knew, that I was Margarito Flores' lawyer. And I'm thinking, maybe he won't like me, and I won't mention it. I'll try a couple of visits, and if we don't hit it off, if it doesn't work out, then I'll never tell him. Well, the first visit lasted three hours. We hit it off. I'm a likable person, apparently, and persuasive. <laughs> so then I went to go see him again, and we hit it off even more. Okay. And then in the third visit, I said, look, I've got to tell you something. And I waited until there was the last half hour of the three-hour visit. And I said, look, there was a client that I got hired by who the government was, con- was convinced his co-conspirators and former boss would kill the lawyer. So my name was not allowed to be anywhere near. And I explained it to him. And I said, I went to court. You know, I, I made appearances on the case. I put letters in and no one ever knew that I was representing this guy because the government felt that his boss would kill me. And he's listening. And he's, I can see in his face, he's thinking, why are you telling me this story? How, what does this have to do with me? And I said, and here's the reason I'm telling you is I have to tell you who the defendant is. You, you, you know him. And his name is Margarito Flores. And I'm the lawyer. I said, the government was convinced that you'd kill me if it came out publicly that I represented him. I said, okay. so I have to, I have to trust you that if you decide not to hire me, that you're not going to kill me for representing Margarito Flores. I said, if I response? do represent you, he sat there with his mouth open, like, I mean, it was some story to be told. And I said, if I represent you, I can't cross-examine the Flores brothers. Somebody else will have to do it. But, you know, I don't even know if the government will let me. They might fight to keep me off the case. But I just need you to know that. I said, I'm trusting you not to kill me. I said, I didn't have to come here. I didn't have to take this case. I said, nobody thinks this is a good idea for me to take your case. Nobody in my life thinks this is a good idea. I said, but I'm trusting you not to kill me because the government thinks that you're a killer and that you'd kill lawyers. And he listened. Now he could have simply said, you know what? I don't want you because you represented somebody who put me in jail. Mm -hmm. You represented somebody who betrayed me. He could have said that. Instead, he said, I understand. I respect you for telling me that. I know that you didn't have to tell me. I want you as my lawyer. He says, what you're telling me, and this is what he said, and I've heard this before. He said, what you're telling me is that you're not afraid. I said, I'm not afraid. I said, I'm not afraid to die today. I'm not afraid to die tomorrow. And he said, I want you as my lawyer. I don't want somebody scared. And that's how, that's how Chapo eventually chose me. Wow. So, and, and just to kind of quickly, like, reiterate, why were they able to extradite him from Mexico to the United States? Like, what was, what was the connection there? Was it the amount of drugs that were coming into the United States through his channel? Not the amount. 
just the fact that the, the drugs ultimately landed in America. Um, okay. He was charged all over the country. Uh, some mm -hmm. of the drugs came to Texas. Some of the drugs came to Chicago. Some of the drugs came to Manhattan. Some of the drugs came to Brooklyn in the Eastern District of New York, and they decided to go first. So that's how they extradited him. And, you know, you know, people say to me, oh my God, how could you represent him? He's such a bad guy. Mm -hmm. To me, he wasn't. I, I view people on how they treat me, not what they did before they meet me. And to me, he was always a gentleman. And when his wife got into trouble and the government was not, it wasn't enough that they got Chapo Guzman, but they wanted his wife as well. And they waited until after the trial ended. And when they came for her and arrested her, you know, there were multiple lawyers on that case. I was the lead lawyer, but there was only one. They asked for me to represent her because they trusted me because they knew that I fought like crazy. I was never looking to make friends with the prosecutors. I was never talking with them beforehand. I mean, Chapa would come out from the back every morning and he'd see like some of the lawyers were like talking to the government like they were friends. You're not my friend if you're the government. In 31 years of practice, I have had one drink with one prosecutor ever. And it was after the Gotti trial, the lead prosecutor and I went out for a drink because I ended up really becoming close with him. He became a friend. I'm not here to make friends. I'm not here to worry about the press. I'm not here to kiss the asses of journalists that are in the audience. I'm not here to go have parties. The lawyers in the case actually had a party and invited the journalists, the reporters, in the middle of the, of the Chapo trial. Which, what did the prosecutors did? Who did? No, the prosecutors, some of the defense lawyers. I mean, Who this is what happened. Now, it wasn't like they were looking to curry favor with the prosecutors, because they weren't like that. These were not bums uh, in that sense. But they had a party, and they wanted to blow off some steam, because the trial was a lot of pressure. And, uh, you know, they invited all the reporters. And I'm just thinking, like, I have to work. You know, I work every weekend on this trial. The last thing I'm going to be doing is spending time, you know, having a party for the reporters. It seems a little strange to me. It's not how I not work. Strange, yeah. Yeah, but, but I mean, that's how, had... that's how defense lawyers are sometimes. There was no way that an acquittal could ever happen. So you had to know, like, what, did, what were you going for? With that I wanted I wanted a hung jury. I, the problem with the case for me was that while he wanted me to be his lawyer in August of 2017, I wasn't hired until like August of 2018 mm -hmm. because it was very difficult to get paid. I didn't want to get indicted. And the other lawyers had come into the case like a year before me, maybe less than a year, but certainly many, 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 many months before. The trial, the opening was in November of 2018. So I didn't have a lot of time to really work on the case. And because of that, I had to split the work with the other lawyers. I, I don't, I've never done that in the case. In all my trials, I've never cross-examined cross every witness in every case. This one, I had no choice. There was too much material, and I only had a couple of months to prepare. So I did a handful. I did the opening and the closing. And the other lawyers had to do it. Now, I'm not passing judgment on the cross-examinations that they did. We do things differently. Some lawyers are, you know, come across as nice and charming. And that's wonderful. If it works for them, 
it very well might. It does. I don't. I don't criticize anybody for that. Other lawyers have different things. It's really based on your personality. My personality is that I'm a bully, and I bully people that are bullies. The bigger the animal that I have to confront, the more aggressive I'm going to get, and the tougher I'm going to get on you. The more humiliating I'm going to be towards you. And you know, it just with me, I need to be in front of the jury because I need to work on every one of them. I need to develop a relationship with every one of them. And the more time that I'm in front of the jury, the easier that can be done. In the three-month trial, it should have been a lot. Problem is that because I couldn't take even a majority of the witnesses, I didn't have a lot of face time in front of the jury. And I therefore didn't have the opportunity to really bond with jurors. There was one juror, one or two that I thought that I had, and it ends up we did. Uh, the jury was out for seven days. Seven days for a trial like this is extraordinary. I mean, this guy should have been convicted in five minutes. Right, right. And they were out for seven days. And I felt that if I had had more time in front of the jury, I could have gotten a hung jury. I could have convinced one or two of them not to convict. I was pretty close. And look, you know, we had other lawyers on the case. Everybody, you know, worked hard. I'm not suggesting that they did work hard. But man, I, I was really locked in on one thing. I wanted to win the case. I knew that if I could get a hung jury, it would be the greatest triumph ever. But then when Gotti, we had Gotti, it was the same thing. I remember when I came out with the defense that he was, he was withdrawn from the mafia. The next day, when it came out publicly in the Daily News, there was the cartoon, you know, that is like on page six or seven, the Daily Cartoon in the mm -hmm. uh, Daily News. And in it was a picture of me and Gotti in front of the judge. And I'm saying, Your Honor, um, he's withdrawn from the mafia. And God, he's got a big smile on his face. And behind his back is an ax that's dripping with blood. So no, nobody thought that we could win. The jury right. didn't, didn't want us to win. We, we were uh, about to open in the case. We had already picked the jury. The selection took like a week because we had to be so careful to make sure that we had jurors that were not going to be so quick to convict. They knew that his father had, uh, you know, had, had died in prison. They knew that his uncle had just been convicted. Every mafia guy had been convicted. We're getting ready to open. And I see that juror number, I don't know what number it was, number nine, I think, is gently weeping to herself. She's crying. And it was a very frustrating jury selection because every juror said, I think he's guilty. But we had to keep them if they said, but I can be fair. What, why was she crying? Because she was afraid? She did not want I don't to be know. So I said to the judge, I said, Judge, juror number nine is crying. You might want to question her. So the judge uh, takes her to sidebar and she said, what's wrong? And she said, I'm afraid I'm going to get axed. She meant to say, I'm afraid I'm going to get whacked. But she said, I'm afraid I'm going to get axed because mm -hmm. of this case. And the government felt that she was a perfectly fine juror for the case, that if you just give her an instruction, judge, she'll be fine. And I remember saying to the judge, judge, if you don't take this woman off the jury i'm going to start to cry and the judge was like and the judge was so fair she was such a great woman i mean this woman is one of the greatest people i've ever known in my life why because she was simply fair she was right. not pro defense she was not pro government the government hated the fact that she wasn't pro government and she wasn't denying every motion we made she was just fair there were things that she did during the trial 
that drove me crazy, that she wouldn't let me cross-examine, wouldn't let me do certain things. She was fair. I got exactly what I deserved from her. And it's because she was fair that John walked out and is a free man today. But now the sheer amount of product that Chapo had pushed through his channels. I mean, like, I'm, I'm assuming it was cocaine, right? Was that his main? There, there are other drugs. Cocaine was other the main drugs. One. Okay. I mean, what was the volume? What was the dollar amount? Because I really didn't follow the case very oh, God. much when it was it going was billions. on. It was billions. 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 I mean, so 14 how, how billion, you, I think, is what they said. So what is, what is the body language of a sympathetic juror or a juror that you think you could reach as opposed to the body language of a juror who's like shooting daggers? The one that's shooting daggers won't lock eyes with me. And if okay. somehow I do get to catch their eyes, there's hate in those eyes. And I've seen hate in eyes before, so I know what it looks like. You know, I have a, in order to be good at this, you have to have a good sense of humor. I really believe that you can be a good defense lawyer, but if you really want to be a great defense lawyer, you have to be able to make people laugh. Why? Because a juror is miserable being in that jury box. How about for three months? But if they're entertained, they're going to say, I really appreciate you entertaining me. And it's, that's the guy who entertained me. So I'm, be, I'm going to be willing to listen to him more. I'm going to like him more. I'm, when I huh. say to the jury, I want you to follow me over this mountain, follow me because I'm telling you the truth. I want them to believe it and feel good about their vote. So I can usually spot the people pretty quickly. And Gotti, you know, I mean, I've never said this publicly, I don't think. Very early on, I had one of the jurors that for some reason thought I was really funny. I mean, really funny, which I wasn't that funny, but I guess maybe she thought that I was. And I remember like, you know, the trial lasted six or seven weeks. Mm -hmm. And I said to Gotti after like three weeks, said you're not getting convicted he's like what are you talking about <laughs> i said you're not getting convicted in this trial and he said how do you know i said because one of the jurors is never going to convict you now i knew that i had one of the jurors and when the verdict came out it was hung and there was acquittals but no convictions of him the other two defendants both got convicted the mm -hmm. other two defendants got convicted one guy spent 20 years in prison but when the jury was interviewed, they said there was one juror, you know, there were, we had the, we had the count, you know, what the, the vote was eight to four for conviction on some counts, nine to three for acquittal on other accounts, but there were some counts, 11 to one, 11 to one for conviction. She was the one. That was the one. And she said, and, and the jury said there was one juror that just would not convict this guy. And he would have been convicted. He probably would have gotten 20 years because he wouldn't have been convicted of everything. But, mm -hmm. you know, look, instead of worrying about the judge, instead of worrying about how I look in the, in the media, instead of worrying about if the prosecutors are going to hate me because I'm cross-examining their witnesses too hard, I'm looking at the jury. And I'm focusing okay. on them. And I'm trying out things and seeing what the reaction is. If I say something, an argument, a line of defense, I'm looking at the jury. I'm looking in their faces and seeing who is it resonating with. Some of them it resonates with. Some of them may not resonate with. And I'm going back to that well again if I think it's working. And I look again. Is there a consistent response? It's like counting cards in blackjack. You have to be able to keep score of what's working and what's not. Focus on those jurors. And by the time I gave my summation in Gotti, 
man, I was so locked in and I was, you know, with the jury that I wanted, the people that I knew were, were considering acquitting. And as I said, we got eight, nine votes on some of the charges. The people that were against me, you can sit with the government. I don't, I don't need to even look at you because I know I don't have you. And I'm right like 95% of the time because I can, you know, when you're, it's not like this is any kind of genius work. If you're in front of somebody for six, seven weeks, every single day, cross-examining every single day, you know, giving an opening, giving a summation, people can't hide their feelings about what they think of you. Mm-hmm. And I'm, and I'm there, man, I'm, I'm in there. I'm, I'm, I'm looking in their faces. I'm this far away and I'm looking at them and I'm saying, can I trust you to ignore the fact that this is John Gotti Jr.? And that the mm-hmm. government, with an eagle on their shoulder, is telling you that you have to con- convict them. Can I trust you? And I'm looking at one juror at a time sometimes. And some people are just like saying, fuck you to me. I mean, they're not saying it, but I can see it in but their eyes. Can, yeah. Yeah. And, I, so and you're at the saying, end of the Gotti so trial. Saying, like with, with Chapo, what, what lost that was you didn't have, you didn't have the opportunity time. to build a relationship. I didn't have the family. opportunity to build a relationship. And it was incredibly frustrating for me. But with Gotti, I remember the jury, there's six here, there's six behind, and I went, I started from the left at the end of my summation. The summation was three hours long. You know, I was, I didn't take a breath for three hours. And I went up and down, and I looked them in the face, and I said, I'm asking you right now, you know, what I said during the opening was a promise I made, and I was going to collect on it during the summation. I knew this case was a long shot. I knew that jurors were, every one of those jurors said that he was guilty before the trial started, but they were willing to keep an open mind. I said, I'm going to cross-examine the first witness either today or tomorrow after the openings are done. I said, if I don't reveal him to be a liar on the stand, convict John Gotti Jr. I said, when I come back for the summation, don't listen to me. Don't listen to any of my crosses. You convict him today. You make a decision today to convict him. When Frank Fapiano hits the stand, if you feel that he told the truth, and I don't expose him for lies in front of you while he's under oath, you convict John Gotti. And, and the government laughed in my face. They were laughing at me. They were, you know, it was like they were, they were passing the gray poupon amongst each other. And you know, I'm, not a, I'm not a gray poupon guy. And I remember thinking, they're laughing at me. They have no idea what's coming. And by the time I got done with Frank Fapiano, I could have said, you know, you, you're wearing women's undergarments underneath your suit, aren't you? Yeah. You know, you, <laughs> you, you, you had sex with all of your sisters, didn't you? Yeah. Because he just was so beaten up. And so the, mm-hmm. now the, the, the summation is going on. And I looked at him and I said, you remember what I told you six weeks ago? I told you that if Frank Fapiano didn't lie, convict i said not only did he lie and here's just some of them i said but you didn't even hear that they ripped up his cooperation agreement they let him lie they let him lie to your face so i took his cooperation agreement a copy of it and i ripped it up right in front of the jury and i threw it up in the air and i said that's the only time you're ever going to hear a cooperation agreement getting ripped up not by them they knew that he lied and i said they're going to come back after my summation, they have a rebuttal. And I'm going to ask you to hold them to this. Have them explain to you that Frank Fapiano didn't lie. 
I said, they're not going to admit that he lied. I said, I, I caught him in 20, 30 obvious lies. I said, you watch. When he does the rebuttal, he won't admit it. He'll never admit it because he mm -hmm. can't admit it. He can't admit it. He won't do it. And the jury was just like, yeah. Prosecutor gets up during his rebuttal and he says, well, you know, there's some question about whether or not the witnesses are telling the 100% of the truth. You know, we don't think that there were any lies, but there could be various different recollections of the facts. And, I, and the jury is immediately looking to me because I'm sitting there watching and I just go like this. You know, and they all start laughing during, you know, the government's rebuttal. You have to play on every strength you have. If you want to win these cases, you can't just simply play it by the book. You can't be unafraid. You have to go in there and put your life on the line because you're living and dying these cases. That's how hard they are. Well, I think that a lot of people don't realize that the government, by and large, lives by the motto of it's okay to frame a guilty man right it, it's well it's okay to frame a guilty man he's guilty anyway you know and to me a breach of of the public's trust and, and a breach of our constitutional rights um, i mean i think you know i think that i don't i don't know that there are many prosecutors they have like knife on the duke lacrosse case he certainly framed innocent people. I don't know that I've ever seen it where they're framing innocent people. Do I not, know not that people, they're putting on framing, people framing that lie? Guilty people. Well, we think he's guilty and we well, need yeah. to push it over the edge. Like fra framing I a guilty man. I think man. that's fair. Yeah. I, I think that's fair. I mean, I had a, a, a cooperator once tell the government that I went to visit him in prison and offered him money to not cooperate against my client. And I said to the prosecutors, I'm like, you've got to be kidding. I brought an investigator as a witness because I knew that you're going to try to get me off this case. You know that I would never do that. And the prosecutor, who now has a very, very important job in New York State, I'm not going to mention her name. She said, of course you didn't do this. I've known you long enough. I know you'd never do something like that. But we know that if you are representing that defendant, he's never going to cooperate. We want him to cooperate. I'm like, you got to be fucking kidding me. You're going to get me off the case because of that? Well, what choice do we have? He said that it happened. And if he testifies, we may get that out of him during his direct examination. And then you'll become an advocate and also a witness. Guess what? I got tossed off the case. He testified. They never brought out of him the fact that I went to see him in prison and offered him money on behalf of the defendant to not cooperate because it was ridiculous and it was a lie. Right. I even said to the government, I'll take a polygraph test. If I fail, I'll quit the bar. I said, I won't just quit the case. I'll turn in my bar card and I will retire as a lawyer today. And they looked at me and they're like, we're not letting you take a polygraph test. I'm like, I know why you're not going to let me take a polygraph test. Yeah. Because you know that I didn't do it. This is what you deal with. So let's talk about Andrew Russo. So Andrew Russo, the late Andrew Russo, was allegedly the head of the Colombo crime family. And you actually set a new precedent in that. Was he the first member of organized crime to make bail? Not the first member. I think probably the first boss. Actually, Gotti Jr. was alleged to be the acting boss, I suppose. Um, at one point, I got him out on bail. Okay. the government you know but but andrew russo yeah i mean he got out on bail 
And I remember when we were making the motion, it was like a 14 defendant case. The other lawyers, when they heard I made the motion that hadn't been argued yet, they were laughing at me. And these are like seasoned mafia lawyers. And they're like, you actually think you're getting him out on bail? I'm like, I'm 100% getting him out on bail. And we ended up having the argument. The next day, he was released on bail because we had such a strong, powerful set of facts that the government couldn't deny it. What happened was he goes into prison and he had seriously advanced dementia and Alzheimer's. And it Mm -hmm. wasn't just memorialized by his doctors on the outside. But, you know, it, it, it's a very rapid descent when you have this type of disease. Yeah. So what you're, what, the way you're caught on a, on, a, on a wiretap in October doesn't mean you're the same person the following November, you know, a year later. And he's in prison. We try to go visit him. And they tell us that he's not there anymore. Where is he? Well, we had to move him to an assisted living facility, an old age home. I'm like, what? We can't take care of him here. We go visit him. He's chained down by his ankles to this twin bed with two armed marshals in the room with him. And I'm like, what are you doing to this guy? And they're like, we have to keep him chained down like this. I'm like, do you ever take it off when he goes to the bathroom? I look at him. I'm like, are you all right? He's like, what am I doing here? You know, he was, I was able to to talk to him, but he Mm -hmm. wasn't all that, he wasn't 100%. And I immediately subpoenaed the records from the prison and the facility because there's a reason why they take the boss of a crime family and stick them in, you know, this facility. It has to be a pretty good reason because normally the Bureau of Prisons thinks that they can cure anybody of any disease. If a guy dies in prison, they'll say, you know, give us a couple of weeks. We think we'll be able to revive him. So we finally get the records. The, the prison doctors looked at him and said, he's got advanced Alzheimer's, he's got advanced dementia, he's got this, he's got that, we can't care for him. And I look at the, the records from the facility, the assisted living facility, and it says the same thing. And it says that, but he's meeting with nutrition experts and recreation people. They're, they're acting as if like when you put your parent into an assisted <laughs> living facility, like they're playing bingo all day yeah, sure. or they're finger painting. <laughs> Meanwhile, the guy's, you know, strapped down to a gurney. So I bring the motion and I'm like, this isn't our doctor saying it. It's their doctor saying it. And they've got him chained down 24 hours a day. I said, do you want to be responsible when he's dead in six months because they chained him down? I said, this is America. The government was like, we don't think he has Alzheimer's or dementia. The, The judge was like, your own doctor said that he had it. They were forced to you know, admit it that he has it. And they said, well, we think that he can get treatment inside the facility. And the mm-hmm. judge is like, you have this man chained down to a single bed. Do you think that's appropriate? This trial may not be for another year or so or two. Who gave that order to, for that to be allowed to happen? You mean for him to be moved from the prison? And to be chained 24-7. Well, the marshals have, you know, that's the rules that if they have somebody who's in detention and he's put into, you know, one of those facilities that he has to be locked up. And, um, you know, we ended up getting him out and he was so happy to be out, but I I didn't really, I couldn't really connect the the, the few weeks that he was in prison Mm -hmm. really destroyed what was left of him mentally. And he died in April. 
I think it was probably, you know, five months after we got him out, um, November, December, January, six months after. As I said to the judge, he's at the end of his life. Even the facility said that he's receiving just palliative care, which means end of life care to try to make him comfortable. How can you leave a guy in? The government wanted him to die in prison. I wanted him to die amongst his family. And getting him out was not only such a shock to everybody, the family was so grateful that they could actually spend time with him until the end. And he died a free man. And Mm -hmm. they were so, you know, it was horrible. It was horrible for me. I wanted him to last longer, really more as a fuck you to the government. But alas, you know, he lasted six months. He died in April. Um, and I was proud of the work we did. And we, we were, went bonkers on that bail application to get him out. We denied them their trophy, which was right. him dying in prison. And to me, that was priceless. Why do you think the, the government devotes so many resources to, let's say, organized crime, right? And it seems, at least from like where the average citizen is sitting, that not enough resources, intelligence, Etc. is devoted to some of the things that are actually a threat to the average person walking around, whether it's terrorism or whatever it is. Why are their resources kind of mismanaged in that way, do you think? Well, because every administration has a decision about what they think is important. This administration has been solely focused on the January 6th riots at the Mm -hmm. Capitol. They've devoted so many resources to that. They've devoted a massive amount of resources to white supremacists and domestic terrorism. Right. Um, and they've said that. They've said that. They've come out and said, you know, we think the greatest threat to this country, the director of the CIA, Chris Ray, said this, that we think that the greatest threat to America is domestic terrorism and white supremacy. So don't be surprised when you have Muslim terrorism that's going crazy in America because you have a administration that doesn't want to acknowledge that it even exists because to admit that it exists would be to admit that Muslim terrorism is in America and we don't want to say anything bad. That's why we almost have a deal with Iran on nukes. Even though they're responsible for killing so many Americans, they're responsible for terrorism all over the globe. We have to pretend this administration that they're really not so bad. You know, it's foolish. Well, I think also because there's this notion that and I have some Muslim friends, but I think there, there's a, the optics of it. If you say Muslim terrorism, that is in effect a form of white supremacy, right? You're saying I mean, it's like, idiotic. It's, it's, it's utterly imbecilic. I've right. got Muslim friends too. Just because they're Muslims doesn't mean that they're terrorists, but right. there are plenty of terrorists that are Muslims. It's sad for the Muslims that are, that are not terrorists. But at the same time, what are we supposed to do? Pretend that if you pretend that the terrorism doesn't exist, it does not go away. It's like when, you know, I saw the other day that Joe Biden tweeted that in order to arrest the runaway inflation that we're having in America, we need to raise corporate taxes because people need to pay their fair share. Raising taxes on corporations has nothing to do with inflation. If you ask a thousand economists, a thousand will tell you the same thing. But everybody's got an agenda. And listen, I'm not just being critical of uh, the current administration. Mm-hmm. Certainly, I was very critical of the administration before that. They had things that were important to them. And they cause the um, Department of Justice to focus on different things. I certainly believe that what happened on January 6th, while it was horrific, 
-hmm. was bad. You know, enough already. We're, we're a year yeah. and a half into this and we've got other issues. You know, the fact that what just happened in Buffalo last week, where a kid who's got severe mental problems, who's threatened to shoot up a school, can walk into a store and buy a, a, an automatic rifle, it's astonishing to me that we don't have a, a national database that anybody who's ever visited a shrink, as far as I'm concerned, or who there's ever been a threat reported about, should not be able to buy a gun, period. Why don't we have that set up but this already? Is the, this is the gridlock in our government. And so this is coming out of your mouth. This is some, You are someone who is a gun owner. You enjoy collecting guns. And even you're saying, like, why do we not have these common sense oh gun laws in place? Most gun owners agree with me. Right. You know, I'm not the NRA. You know, I'm not, you know, no gun laws for anybody. I think there should be some gun control. I don't think that it should take me, you know, seven or eight months to get my gun license in New York, that it takes me six or seven weeks to pick up a gun that I bought. It's idiotic. I'm a, a lawful and careful gun owner. The people that are shooting up schools, that are shooting up supermarkets, that are shooting up churches, they have psychological history for the most part. Look what happened in Florida. The guy, the kid that shot up the school, he had a psychological history. And these, you are, and have these a psychological, are all kids that, have, that they bought their weapons legally. Or their parents did. And if you have mm -hmm. a kid in your house that has reported mental problems or has threatened people, take the guns out of the house. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, I don't love the idea of lawful gun owners losing their guns. But if you love your guns that much, then you have to keep them at the range. You've got to keep them at a, you know, a firearm uh, uh, dealer. And you pick them up if you want to fire them at a range. It's some of the freedom sometimes you have to lose if you're living with somebody who's got mental problems who have threatened people before. They either have to ensure those guns are completely locked up safe or remove the guns from the house. It sucks, but it's better than, you know, dead innocent people. Every gun owner that I know that's responsible, yes. you know, they're rabidly pro-Second Amendment. But they also recognize that people with mental problems shouldn't have guns. Why? Because it's bad for, for all of us that are good, that are legal gun owners. Sure. And when something bad happens. All right. So I want to talk to you about a headline that I just saw. So you're representing uh, K-Flock. Yeah. Is that how you pronounce his name? Okay. Yeah, Kevin so Perez, K Flock. Kevin Perez. All right. So, and he's a rapper. So, tell me a little bit about that case and what's going on with it. Well, he's uh, he was arrested uh, months ago for a murder that occurred in broad daylight in Manhattan, Upper Manhattan. He happens to be a very soft spoken, despite his rap music, which is not necessarily, actually, it's, it's pretty good, uh, I have to say. I actually like it. Um, <laughs> and I'm, it's not my first choice of music, rap music, but. He's right. a really talented kid. Um, he was in an area where somebody saw him. They were inside a, a barber shop and um, somebody walked out to confront him. It's all on video. It's very clear that he wanted nothing to do with the guy. He waves the guy off. He's walking with a young woman. And as shown in the video, the guy is walking towards him in a very aggressive manner. He puts his hands in his pockets and Kevin is alleged to have seen the guy walking towards him aggressively with his hand in his pocket and took a gun out and shot the guy and killed him. When the guy hits the ground and is found, he's got a loaded gun 
that was in his pocket that his hand was on at the time. You know, we consider that to be self-defense. So he did take, he did shoot him in self-defense. That's what the allegation is. You know, I don't want to talk too much about the details of the case, okay. but the government claims that he pulled the gun out and shot him. But at the same time, the person that was dead on the ground had his hand on a loaded weapon, illegal loaded weapon, apparently about to shoot Kevin. Okay. So without saying too much, you're arguing obviously self-defense. That's the crux. You know, of the that, that, that could be one of the arguments, self-defense. And I, I would say to the public, you know, somebody's walking up to you with a loaded gun and it's pretty clear he's going to use it mm -hmm. with a criminal record a mile long. Do you want to get shot or do you not want to get shot? Oh, absolutely. I wouldn't hesitate to pull the trigger. Wouldn't hesitate I would not to pull hesitate. the trigger. Yeah. No. What, what is he facing, first of all? Like, what is charged with murder. Free murder? He's facing the rest of his life in prison. He's 19 years old, just turned 19. Wow. And how did he come to hire you? You know, I've represented a bunch of rappers in the past. The game, Fat Joe, as I said, Jimmy Rosemond, who was a producer and manager. Mm -hmm. You know, I've, I've got a reputation in not just the field, I guess, nationally. And uh, his, his managers found me. I was sitting in an airport waiting for a flight home. They contacted me. I spoke to them then. And they wanted me. And, you know, they know they're going to get a fight to the death. Right. And that's why they hired me. And they're going to get it. I promise you that. Okay. That's going to be a trial. And it's going to be a battle. Okay. And what is, because you're all, you always hear that the criminal justice system as of late has become like a plea deal factory, that they will use every tactic possible to intimidate a defendant into agreeing to a plea deal. So how do you overcome, I guess, maybe that fear in the client if they start to panic and they start to feel like, let's just take a plea because I, I don't want to take a chance with a trial or how do you overcome that? doesn't really happen in my case is I go to trial a lot. Um, okay. If, if somebody's hiring me, they're hiring me because they expect that they may have to go to trial. They're not scared. I mean, okay. if you're hiring me, you expect a fight. You know, if, I very rarely get hired to work at a plea. So the, the, the people that I represent are different. Yes, most of the cases, the great majority end in pleas. I've got trials scheduled, you know, June, October, February. You know, I've got trials. And unless they give us a very low deal, we're going to trial. You know, okay. and it's just how it is. My clients don't get nervous. They hire me for a reason. I've got to act as their strength. If you've got a lawyer that you're afraid can't try the case, mm -hmm. you've got the wrong lawyer. And you need okay. to hire a different lawyer. If you hire a lawyer who you think is weak, you've got the wrong lawyer. If you hire a lawyer who at the end of the trial, if you've lost, you're pissed that the lawyer didn't fight hard enough, You've got the wrong lawyer. People, I, I don't get that type of complaint. Now, I've got all sorts of issues, but one of them is not, <laughs> you know, fighting hard enough and effectively for clients. Yeah. What is your relationship now with the government? I mean, have you been in their crosshairs? Like, have you been targeted by them in any way? Like, have they used tactics like the IRS or dug into your well, background? I've gotten audited plenty of times. Um, okay. I've had... Two clients, I think, I have to think, I can think of at least two off the top of my head who were wired up by the government and were making tapes against me while I was representing them. That was bad. Um, I've had certain prosecutors, I had one guy, in fact, it was, it was during the Gotti trial. I was at the urinal during the trial and one of my clients who was close with the Gotti family 
came up to me and they had owed me some expense money and he stuck the envelope of cash in my suit pocket, literally while I was at the urinal. This was like a friend of mine. And he said, uh, you know, do me a favor, don't fill out the tax form. Because if you receive more than $10,000, you have to fill out what's called an 8300 form, an IRS form. And I'm like, what? I'm like, I'm not taking your money. And he's like, no, no, it's okay. It was Mm $12,000. I said, I'm not taking it. I said, I'm not going to jail for the Gottis. The entire thing was recorded. He was working for the government. And I remember as I walked back into the courtroom after I washed my hands, I leaned over to John and I said, your friend, Louis Kasman's a rat. And he's like, what? And I told him what happened. And he said, do you think these prosecutors did it? You know, his initial response was the prosecutors that we're on trial with had done this to me during the trial. Mm-hmm. I said, look, I don't particularly like all the prosecutors on this case, but these are honorable people. There's no way. I said, but there is one prosecutor who I had a really ugly trial with from the Eastern District of New York. His name was Tom Siegel, just an utter clown, a, a, a talentless clown. And he got embarrassed during the trial. We just abused him, you know, every day. And I knew that he took it very personally. And he just was a very ill-tempered, stupid prosecutor. And it ended up that he quit the office. And now he's, an, he's a writer, whatever that means. You know, he <laughs> sells five books a year. He wasn't cut out for the job. And I remember thinking to myself, the only one who would be dumb enough to wire, me, to wire somebody up to tape me during a trial has got to be Tom Siegel. And the reason why it was so stupid is that it's potentially an appeal issue. I could have used it, you know, potentially if John was convicted, he's asking me questions, strategy questions during the trial. There's one government. You don't get to say, well, it wasn't our office that did it. That's your government too, the prosecutors. And he's asking me, who's going to do this in the trial? Is John going to testify? All this stuff was recorded for the government. John didn't get convicted. So it ended up not making a difference. But I remember thinking it has to be Tom Siegel. And a few years later, when it finally came out that Louis Kasman was cooperating and I saw the FBI reports, Tom Siegel was the prosecutor that ran them. I was right. Wow. So sometimes you get, you get lucky. I was lucky that I caught that. But I've had the, they've wired my clients up. They've certainly targeted me. But, you know, look, if you do things carefully, if you're smart, you don't break the law, it's mm-hmm. okay. Okay, so you were telling me briefly that there's a sentencing, what, May 23rd? Inigo Philbrick. Yeah. Okay. What can you tell me about that? Well, he's a young uh, art dealer, I I suppose I can call him that, Um, a huge one, and really hit it big early when in his 20s. And um, eventually it unraveled. He was committing pretty significant fraud, up to $83 million, $86 million worth of fraud. And then he fled and uh, was found in a remote island and he was arrested. The government went and, and, and put him on a plane and took him back. And he's pled guilty and he's being sentenced on Monday, on Monday the 23rd. I read a quote where you said that, I guess the art industry, the art gallery industry has a lot of fraud in it. Oh, like, yeah. What did you mean by that? Well, I mean, it's not just the, the galleries, it's the auction houses. I mean. Sotheby's and, you know, and, you know, there was a conviction of fixing prices, Mastro auction house, the principals went to prison, Christie's and Sotheby's was the, uh, the, the fixing during the, uh, 
during the auctions. The auction house owners is rampant fraud. It's a filthy industry. Inigo Philbrick is not the cause of it. He's a symptom of it. And, you know, now it's a very high profile sentencing. I've got, I get a call every day from some production company, Netflix, Hulu, whatever there is. They want to do uh, a story about it. His uh, girlfriend and the mother of his child is a reality TV star in England. And there's so much press that's interested in it. And it puts a lot of pressure on the judge. And it's mm -hmm. frustrating for me because, you know, this is just another white collar case. Uh, although there is an $86 million fraud that, that overstates the, the, the loss amount because it's not like he was selling fake art. And what was the he property doing? He was, still, he was selling the same piece of art to multiple people, correct? Sometimes, or he was using it as collateral for loans. Well, he was using he was inflating it. Inflating the prices of it. Okay. The loss that was actually incurred by the victims was not 86 million. And I had a, a completely different take on him before I met him. You know, I heard about him. I read that he was arrested. They, you know, he was this arrogant socialite with the, uh, as I said, reality television girlfriend. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he was described in such horrible terms. I spoke to the guy on the phone the first time, the easiest client, the most down to earth. The guy never complains. He never complained all the time. He didn't get to see his baby who was born after he was in prison. He's seen his fiance one time. She lives in London and because of COVID, this guy never complained once. Such a pleasure to represent. And again, I understand people are angry and I totally get it. But as a defense lawyer, could not have had an easier client or a better guy to represent. And did he have to pay back? What was it, over $80 million that he had well, to pay back? They, they froze assets. They certainly took much of his assets and he's got mm -hmm. the rest that he's got to pay off the rest of his life if, they can, okay. if he earns it or they can find it. But he's been, he was cooperative with the government. He you know, told them where all of his assets were. There's no, there's no, they've never claimed that he lied to them. And I'm afraid that, you know, because there's so much pressure and, you know, you've got some of the victims are, are writing articles and they're looking mm -hmm. to get movies and they want to sell their life stories. When you ha have that kind of stuff going on, it's hard for me to feel as bad for the victims. Got it. And the girlfriend, you said she's in England and she can't come over here because of COVID? She'll be here for the sentencing, but okay. it's been very tough during, uh, during the COVID crisis. Mm -hmm. People from England weren't allowed to come here. So okay. for, for a long, long part of it, she wasn't even allowed to uh, come to the United States. Was it her status as a reality star that made the case more high profile or was, or was his crime? I think that's part of it. Was... It's both. I think the part of it is her, her status, but the greater part of it is that he's, you know, one of the more infamous art fraudsters in the history of America and Europe. So, you know, that's, that's really more, I, I think the reality part is secondary. Do you think that you will wind up on the right side or the wrong side of criminal justice history? as time goes on? Well, I mean, it depends. Is it possible for society ever to feel that somebody who represents the hated in society can ever be good? You know, I've gotten innocent people out of jail. Um, mm -hmm. I've beaten the government when they should have been beaten. You know, which side I ended up on? I've been doing this for 31 years, Allison. I've never even thought of that question or the answer. I don't care. Okay. And what is, do you think, is the best advice that you've ever given a high-profile client? And what was it and who was it? The best advice I've given them 
is to, you know, lay low, to don't appear arrogant, to, you know, not be out publicly if you're being charged. You don't want any bad press. I, mm -hmm. I always tell people that I told, you know, John Gotti that obviously he was remanded and detained when we had the first trial. And I told him that he had to look, you know, not unpleasant because he could be a little scary looking, um, mm -hmm. that it's important that, that a jury needs to be able to connect with you. If they see you as a regular guy, they'll be able to connect. So I tell clients, look, don't make this worse for yourself. Be careful on the phone. Don't say anything that you shouldn't say and let me handle the rest. Have you been following, I know that this is a civil trial, but have you been following the Johnny Depp, Amber Heard trial at all? I have a little bit, yeah, I have. What are your thoughts on how it's going for each side? I, I don't think either side is going to win. I think that there's enough mud thrown on both of them. I don't think Johnny's going to win. I don't think whatever her name is is going Amber. to win. Amber. Yeah. Um, I, I have empathy for Johnny Depp in this case. I do because, you know, she tortured the guy. I don't even know that she has a job. I, I, don't, I don't even know, frankly. I don't even know what she does. Is she an actress? I've never even heard yeah, of her. Yeah, she, she's an actress. She's had a part here, a part there. I think oh. she was an Aquaman. She made the... Uh, $7 million, I think, from the divorce. Is that what it was? She was going to give it to charity. She never did. Right. And then she became a lesbian after? No, I mean, no. She, it sounds, she, no, you know, she was, she dated women before him. Uh, and I think she, she kind of goes back and forth. Uh, I'm sure she's an opportunist. She's an opportunist. I think she, she married Johnny Depp um, for his fame. I felt bad for him. She was violent towards him. That being said, you know, there's some bad things that came out about Johnny Depp here. I can't ignore that. I think probably mm -hmm. the two of them were dumb. I don't think he ever should have brought the lawsuit. I don't think it helps him. But if I had to tell you which person of the two I have more empathy for, it has to be Johnny Depp. And maybe it's because I, I liked him in some of his movies. I don't know. <laughs> oh, man. That's See, I'm, just, I'm, no, I'm no different than a, a typical juror. I'm not yeah. swayed by the evidence. I'm swayed by my own personal feelings, which, of course, is wrong. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I've been paying attention to the evidence, and and frankly, there's there's a mountain of, of actual concrete evidence that he was actually emotionally and physically assaulted by her. By there her, really yeah. isn't much evidence on her side to prove that she was assaulted by him. And that, and that's the good point is the fact that she was the one making the tapes, so she right. knew that she was taping. So therefore, she's going to act in a manner on tape that's going to appear innocent. That being said, she's still captured on tape, admitting that she's hit him, admitting that she abused him. And this poor guy never knew that he was even being taped. So how can you not have more empathy for him? She was a monster. She's taping him for one reason. Yeah. Money. She wanted the money and she got plenty of it. And, you know, I, I just am not, I don't, I don't buy the crocodile tears or any of it. Well, there, were, there aren't even any tears. When she's on the stand, she's like trying yeah. to squeeze a tear out, there's not one tear. It's, She's it's, a I sociopath. It, yeah, it's it really speaks of narcissism and, and yeah. sociopathy that yeah. that she would do something like that. So I agree, yeah. but um, I know that you're not you're not a spiritual guy, right? Not so a much. Bit. A little bit. A little bit. Okay. So I always ask everyone this question, and it is a spiritual question. What do you think you incarnated into this life as Jeffrey Lichtman to learn? And what do you think you came here to teach? <laughs> I came here to right wrongs uh -huh. and to punish bad people. 
That's what I came here for. And I always say, everybody gets it in the end. If I don't right. get you now, I'll get you later. Um, I just want to briefly talk about Beyond the Legal Limit, which is your podcast. So in your podcast, you discuss societal issues, political issues, and you give really amazing insight into some of your more famous cases. What made you decide to start a podcast? And what are you personally getting out of it, doing it? I think it's a catharsis to some extent. Um, it's yeah. fun to be able to talk about this stuff and reveal things that have occurred that I haven't talked about before that aren't well known. I think it helps young lawyers to learn how you can actually be good at this work, how to be successful. Today's society is so lazy. Young lawyers, they care more about you know, hair and makeup than they do actually doing work. So mm -hmm. I want to impart that it's important to work hard. And why did I do it? I used to do talk radio in New York City. I did it five days a week. I was constantly being censored. After every show, I'd have uh, the, uh, the, the program director yelling at me because I said this or I said that. And it was pathetic. I'm getting yelled at by an idiot telling me what I'm allowed to say publicly. You're not going to tell me what to say publicly. And eventually, I sort of forced my way off of it. And, you know, now I can do the podcast and I don't care what anybody thinks. I say what I want. And some of the stuff is not politically correct. Some of the right. stuff people are unwilling to say publicly. Look, I don't care. I have to say these things for better or for worse. They need to be said. And I think that I have a lot of things to give regarding my career in terms of the stories. I've had some of the biggest trials in the history of America. So mm -hmm. why shouldn't people get to hear what goes on behind the scenes and what it takes to actually do this kind of work? I find it interesting. And if I find it interesting, I'm going to inflict it upon my listeners as well. <laughs> it is. It's so interesting. Um, it's so interesting. I love it. So Jeffrey Lichtman, my cousin, and hopefully now my friend, I want to thank you so much for like, I, I don't know how long we took here, but I think it was well over an hour. And I want to thank you so much for being candid and open and honest and really giving amazing insights into all these Allison, things. Allison, it was wonderful. You're a great interviewer and uh, time flew. I appreciate it. Hey, so that was a banger. Wouldn't you agree? That was, I mean, seriously, this was an explosive interview. It was, it was honestly one of the most fascinating interviews to me because you really get a behind the scenes look at what goes on in these high profile criminal trials. And really there's so many shades of gray, you know, it's like, you can't say that something is black and white. The government does some very questionable things. Criminal defense attorneys sometimes have to operate in that gray area as well. So everybody's kind of operating in, in this gray area. And the, the concept of right and wrong, good and bad gets very, very, I don't know what, what the right word is, but you know where I'm going with this. You start to question a lot of things like what's really going on with the government, what's going on with federal prosecutors, and what's really going on in these trials, and what will federal prosecution do? How far will they go to get a high-profile conviction? There's really a lot to it, and I think that this, both parts of this interview were really entertaining. Some of the parts were shocking, uh, at least for me. I don't know if it was for you, but also really educational. You know, it really was an eye-opener. I have to say that. 
So with that being said, if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please give me a review. That always helps me. Also, let me know in the review what you thought of this episode. I always love to get feedback. If you're listening on Spotify, please subscribe. Subscribe on Apple. If you wind up watching this episode also on YouTube, please subscribe and leave a comment and leave a thumbs up on YouTube. And you can find me on Instagram. And I, it's so crazy. I'm thinking to myself, I don't think I've ever given a shout out to my own Instagram on my podcast. Duh. I mean, you know what? (laughs) It's because I'm so passionate about this that I don't think about a lot of these things. But going forward, we are calling out and name checking my Instagram. So follow me on Instagram at the Allison Kugel. So it's A-L-L-I-S-O-N-K-U-G-E-L at the Allison Kugel. And I will catch you guys on the next one. Peace. Peace.